ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the sixth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, a jury of his peers. For more information, including photos and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJCBreakdown and at AJC Courts. And new this season, join the Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Me personally, I put the pager underneath my pillow so that I make sure I don't miss a call because they come in all hours of the night. We have a saying, we only get one shot at this. Once we leave that crime scene, that's it. We can't recreate it exactly how it was again. I was led to a crime scene where my beautiful son was dead in a car. Only his body was riddled with bullets. And I whispered, I love you, son, for the last time. So there were four men in the Bonneville that night. Two are now dead. One ran toward I-285 and then got hit by a police car. The fourth man, as the TV cops say, he's in the wind. Let's do a quick recap just to remind you of who was where. Not trying to write a Russian novel here, just give you the spark notes. The driver of the Bonneville was Carlton Redding. He's the one who ran from the scene, losing his flip-flop as he fled. He survived. In the passenger seat up front was Reggie Koiku. In the back seat, sitting behind the driver, was Quincy Weish. Koiku and Weish were both shot to death, apparently by the fourth man, who was sitting behind Koiku. Homicide detective Scott Burhalter has watched that fourth man on the surveillance video from the Burger King and from the Valero gas station across the street. Then Burhalter caught his next break and it was a big one. Remember when Burhalter mentioned that Quincy Weish's mother called the police the day after the shootings? Quincy's mom told Burhalter the name of her son's girlfriend. She said the girlfriend would know what Quincy had been planning and with whom. So she gave me her phone number, I called her. I had uh, met in person with her. Because we had Quincy Weish's phone, but we couldn't unlock it. So I had brought the phone with me. The police had recovered Weish's phone at the murder scene. It, too, would become a critical piece of evidence. She unlocked Quincy's phone for us. And now, Quincy Weish's cell phone is open, and it provides a direct path to the fourth man. Weish had several conversations just before the shooting with a person listed as Big Nick. Burhalter traces Big Nick's number and finds Verizon customer Nicholas Benton. I pull up his uh, photo 
his driver's license photo, look at the Valero gas station video more. It's like, that looks like him. The guy in the license photo looks just like the guy in the surveillance video. Welcome back to the sixth season of Breakdown. I'm Kevin Riley with Bill Rankin. We're from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and we're tracking the investigation of this double murder. If you appreciate this kind of journalism and would like to support it, please consider subscribing to the AJC. To do so, go to myajc.com slash subscribe. Let's sum up what Burhalter knows so far. He has surveillance video from the Burger King, where the shooting took place. He has surveillance video from the Valero station. This shows the blue Bonneville sitting next to a Valero gas pump. Then it shows a man with a backpack walk up and lean into the car, as if talking with the people inside. This is the man Burhalter now believes to be Nicholas Benton. But the crucial next step was to establish that the man in the Valero video was indeed Nicholas Benton. Burhalter goes back to Fat Weich's girlfriend. She greets him with two of her friends. I uh, show her the surveillance video, just a small, like, minute and a half uh, clip of the surveillance video from the Valero gas station. As soon as he came into view, they said, that's Nick. That's Nick. Without hesitation. Or, or coaching for all three of them said, that's Nick. And they went on to explain how they knew it was Nick. His walk, his mannerisms, his hair. Detective Burhalter tries an investigator's gambit. He decides to visit Nick Benton at home, check him out, check out how he lives, ask him a few pointed questions. But he doesn't want to show all his cards yet. Nice neighborhood. Houses were in good condition. People mow their lawns. Nicholas Benton's house was good condition. Nice house. Everything. Given the neighborhood that the homicide occurred in and the brutality of the homicide, you're expecting like a hardened criminal in a rough neighborhood. Burhalter finds that Benton lives with his mother. We went over there, uh, knocked on the door. Eventually, uh, Nicholas Benton came to the door, welcomed us in, let us come in. And uh, we sat down and um, chit-chatted. So now, we'll take you someplace you probably haven't been. The living room of a suspected killer and his mom. We obtained audio of this first contact between Burhalter and the man who is emerging as his number one suspect. In the recording Burhalter made of the encounter, we can hear him knocking on the actual door. Nobody answers, so... After they're invited in, Detective Burhalter and Detective David Quinn assure Nicholas Benton and his mother, Vonda, that the police aren't there to arrest anyone or to trick anyone. The two are skillful, experienced interviewers. They maintain an air of affability and concern even as their questions get sharper. Do you, uh, by any chance, happen to know what this is about? Yeah, 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 about my friend. Okay, well, t- tell me what you've heard, what you can tell me about this. Uh, well, he, I know he got killed at the Burger King. What was your friend's name? Uh, Fat. Fat? Yeah. Do you know his real name? Uh, D. I know, I know him as Fat. What happened? Uh, I really, I really don't know. Yeah? Where were you at when he got killed? Uh, I was at the house. Yeah? Yeah. 
We're uh, here at this yeah, house? Yeah, this house. Okay. So, when he got killed, you were here here at home, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, what, um, Mom, were you home at that time, too? Yes. Okay. Yes. Was he home? Yes, he was home. Well, he okay. came in with my daughter. Who told you that uh, Fat got killed? Uh, I had first seen him on Instagram. And mm-hmm. then, uh, the other first time I had I seen him was on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Hey, poppers. Um, anybody call you on the phone, let you know? Or anything yeah, like a whole, a whole lot of my friends. What's your phone number? This is a crucial moment. Benton gives up his phone number without hesitation. Think about the endless, enormous flow of cellular data collected in the area that night. Hundreds, probably thousands of calls. Now, Burhalter knows exactly where to look. Eight minutes into the interview, Burhalter gets down to cases. Well, here's the thing, man. Um, you know, I'm not here to... Uh you know, not here to BS you, not here to trick you or anything right. like that, okay? And this this is what I got. Berhalter then explains that he has surveillance video from both the Burger King and from the Valero station, where the four men first met up. You have two cars. Uh-huh. You have one car, which is the victim vehicle, and another car, which is the suspect vehicle. They're backed in side by side. Two cats get inside the back seat of that car. Okay. Okay. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing a bunch of shots come out the windshield. Yeah. And in the process, two people were killed. So I'm able to see the faces. I'm able to see the people. The people. Very good. Okay. okay. All right. I'm able to see that real well. So I know who was there. Okay. And I know who wasn't there. And this is another thing, too. I processed the victim's vehicle. And I got some bullets out of it. A uh, bunch of blood. Uh, I also got fingerprints. Uh-huh. And the fingerprints happened to be in the same spots that the two guys that were driving in the suspect vehicle, uh-huh. fingerprints were right there on the back doors. Okay. The implication is clear. We have pictures of you, and we have your fingerprints. If you see this right here, this is a screenshot. The guy on the right is fat. Okay. Okay. You guys know who the guy on the left is? No, I'm trying to see if he have dreads, though. No, I don't know who he is. Do you know him? You recognize your boy? Yeah, yeah, I know Fat. Benton says, yeah, yeah, I know Fat. So everybody knows it's Fat. Who's the other guy in the frame? So you don't recognize the person wearing white there? No. Okay. How about now? Because some people during the investigation, you know, we didn't have any foundation of fact, mm-hmm. have said it's you. Said it's me? That's mm-hmm. what they've oh, said. Yeah, I am absolutely sure that, my, that Nicholas did not have anything to do with fat being killed. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's what I'm going to say. Oh, no, we're no, not no, saying no, that he not, killed fat. Not, not he killed fat, no, no. no. Or anybody else far as that goes. So. Your story is you were here with home with mom the yeah, whole night. Yeah. What time did you get here that night? Uh, you had to pick up your girls. Sure. You're not sure? Mm-hmm. Now the detectives shift gears slightly and come up with something interesting from Benton. 
Before his death, when was the last time you saw him? I seen him that day. I dropped him off at the store. And you dropped him off where? At the Varillo. Oh, what time was that? It was like around like 7, 8, 8 7 or 8 p.m.? Yeah. And you, in the in the Ultima? Yeah. Okay, who was with you? It was just me, me and Faith. So you scooped him up, he needed a ride up there? Oh, he, he said was a big boy. And he said what was going on? No, nah, it was just like a, like a normal day. Yeah. You know, okay. he ride me every day. Okay. Where's, yeah, he, was, he was a good friend. Okay, so you drop him off. He didn't tell you who he was getting with later on? No. And there's been no talk of who who he left to go, who he met with, or what he did with those people he met with. I don't know about it, no. Has anybody questioned you, like, did the girl ever come to you and say, well, you picked him up? No, no, she didn't say nothing like that. Hmm. I, said, I just seen it at the funeral and we had a cookout for him. Mm -hmm. Okay. After 38 minutes, the detectives wrap it up and take their leave. Now everyone is smiling and laughing and barking and thank youing. I think that you got what you came for, you know, and I, I hope it wasn't you, help to you. You've been awesome. <laughs> thank yeah, you. I must say, you know, thank you. you. You may know what we have to go through in these situations. I do. And, uh, I you, do. You have the utmost class, and we really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. So, you're welcome. Thank you for allowing us to come to your home. Oh, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> so the cop and his quarry have begun a delicate dance around a double murder. Like the first round of a prize fight, they're sparring but neither one wants to land his best punch. Nick's mother relays a chilling footnote. Nick was a pallbearer at Fat Weich's funeral. Burhalter believes that Nick not only killed Fat Weich, he buried him too. Burhalter then does what cops always do. He leaves his card, you know, if you think of anything else, and walks out. Six weeks after the killing, Burhalter believes he has sewn up the case, and he returns to Benton's home. He still has no murder weapon, no getaway car, no DNA. But the IDs of Benton on the video and the cell phone records are compelling. This time, he's not there to chit-chat. He's there to arrest Benton. Now, this kind of arrest doesn't work the way it does on TV or in the movies. Burhalter is required to get help from the police fugitive squad. It specializes in the arrest of violent felons. So Burhalter and a truckload of the APD's fugitive unit arrive at the house. Unlike last time, there's a crowd of cops at Nick Benton's mother's home. Jesus, 12? I mean, this is someone who's wanted for murder. So the goal is to apprehend someone without incident so that the officers are safe, uh, the general public is safe, and also so that the, the accused is also safe. We don't want anyone to get hurt. When I got out, of uh, the car once they advised that the, the house was uh, secure and Nicholas Benton was in custody. Went up, talked to him. You know, he was upset, and I can understand that. He's out on his front lawn at 9 o'clock in the morning. He had said, this is embarrassing, man. You know, you could have just come and talked to me. And I said, well, unfortunately, I got rules that I got to play by. The police charge Benton with murder and take him to jail. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Okay, Kevin, we've got an awful twin killing, a suspect in custody, but no smoking gun in the way of forensic evidence tying anyone to the killing. And we've got some really hazy videos. 
You know, in murder cases like this, it's hard to get a conviction with evidence this lacking. We've been going on a while now, and of course I know your special connection to this case, but the listeners don't. Why don't we share it with them? Uh, Bill, I guess it's about time to do just that. Uh, Let me explain it this way. In the summer of 2017, Nicholas Benton had been awaiting trial for about a year, and that's when our lives began to intersect. On the Saturday before Father's Day, I went down my steep driveway to get the mail, and in the mailbox, I grabbed an envelope, and it said in those insistent, all capital letters, jury summons. Please read all instructions carefully. I remember when you got that jury summons, we bumped into each other in the newsroom. I remember that conversation, Bill, because, of course, I did what a lot of people do, right? Complained about jury duty is inconvenient. In fact, I had to call in, according to the summons, the night after we returned from a family vacation. So I was complaining about it, and you got on my case. I've always thought that as a U.S. citizen, there's probably nothing more important than serving on a jury. It's something you should embrace, not try to get out of. You're going to be sitting in judgment over a real person. You could be deciding their liberty. What I always try to think is if you find yourself in that kind of situation, wouldn't you want someone like you being on your jury? You really got to me that day because one of the other things you said was that you'd always wanted to be on a jury and because of your job, you never get to. So once I got over the fact that you were lecturing the boss, I realized that you were right and I was frankly a little embarrassed at my reaction. I ended up writing a column about it And in that column, I created a little cliffhanger for the readers, and I said, I have to call to find out whether I have to report Monday morning. Guess what? I called, and I had to report. Having been in the Fulton County Courthouse about a million times, I know what happens on jury selection day. I also know it's the worst possible time to try and get in the courthouse if you're in a hurry. A none-too-thrilled army of prospective jurors marches on the courthouse. They form a long line that stretches down the street. At the courthouse, signs warn people not to use their cell phones. But people use their cell phones anyway. People cut in line. Attorneys self-importantly skip directly to the front for quick admission. You know, I love lawyers, but sometimes... Hey, I was in that line. And let me tell you what it's like from the juror's perspective, Bill. I got there early, fought the traffic downtown, thought, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm right ahead of schedule. And I see this line, and you're not even sure you're in the right line. Right? Yeah. And then you're standing in line. You're waiting to go in. You got to go through like airport security and all this stuff. And it's really for someone like me who hates to wait in line, you're like, oh boy, this is going to be terrible. You know what, Kevin? Did you use your cell phone when you were waiting in that line? (laughs) I don't remember using my cell phone while I was in the line, but uh, later, you know, it became clear everyone else was using theirs. And so I I did. So you get inside the courthouse on one of its busiest days with hundreds of jurors coming in. It's not the epitome of efficiency. How did you like those elevators? Man, the elevators are slow. And the problem, of course, is you stand in line to stand in line to stand in line in this process. And a lot of people don't want to be there. It's confusing. You know, most of us don't go to the courthouse. So we finally get up to the seventh floor after waiting in line for what must be the slowest elevators in the Western world. They drive me crazy. Yeah. And so we get up to the uh, jury assembly room, but we're in line again to check in. 
and there's a deputy up there, and he's trying to keep order, and he's sort of joking with everybody. And you can overhear people talking who've been there before. The smart people brought books because they knew that we'd probably be waiting around all day. And then people are just using their cell phones. In fact, when you get into the jury assembly room, there's all kinds of signs. Don't use your cell phones. Don't use your cell phones. The seats are about as uncomfortable as possible. They do have snacks and coffee and things like that, so that made it much better. But my day, there were 425 people summoned, and the air conditioning wasn't working right in the middle of the summer. Sweet. Hey, had you ever been uh, summoned for a jury before? I've gotten the summons, never had to appear, and certainly never ended up on a jury. So you're sitting around in that wonderful jury room, sweating, uncomfortable, What happens? Does somebody finally show up and tell you what's going on? Yeah, eventually, uh, Judge Robert McBurney comes and addresses the jurors. McBurney is a former prosecutor now serving as a Fulton County Superior Court judge. His duties include greeting jurors. And here are some of the points he tries to make. None of you likely woke up this morning thinking, yippee, what I get to do today is deal with the mess of traffic, park in some strange parking lot called the red lot or the yellow lot, sit on a shuttle and then sit in his room for an hour wondering what the heck is going on. So McBurney tells them what the heck's going on. One of the important roles that you are serving today is basically pressure cooker. Um, These litigants are needing to decide once and for all, is this really something that ought to go to trial? So let's say it's a criminal case. The defendant knows what the offer is on the table. Take a plea, get five years. The defendant has a pretty good sense of how strong his case is or isn't. And he and his lawyer are talking right now, should we take the offer or put it to a jury? And some of those defendants are gonna say, let's take that offer. And they've had that offer for several weeks now. Why did it only happen today? Because you're here, that's why. So some of you won't go down to a courtroom, but we will have resolved cases, criminal and civil. And the lawyers will be grateful and the litigants will be grateful. You just won't ever meet them. Um, But if you do get to serve, I think you'll be the winners in this lottery because you will have uh, performed a civic duty that is important, but also real fascinating. After a delightful stay in the stuffy jury room, I'm called as part of a pool of about 50 jurors. We're herded upstairs to Judge John Gogert's courtroom. At length, I find out that the system finally has my number. I go from being Kevin Riley to being Juror 18. In the courtroom, we all say what we do. We had a diesel mechanic, a musician, a housewife. We even had a woman who said her husband was a professional baseball player. So at this point, I'm asking myself, how does the editor of the newspaper even get considered for the jury box? You may be wondering that too. So I asked people about that later. But first, Kevin, let's take a moment and tell people who you are. Kevin moved to Atlanta in 2011 from Dayton, Ohio. He grew up in Cleveland and still suffers from the psychological damage of being a Cleveland sports fan. We in the newsroom have to endure his claim that LeBron is the greatest NBA player of all time. He tends to talk a little bit too much on those occasions when the Indians win and his incessant complaining about the Browns, which were once an NFL team. So as editor of the paper, You get out in the community a lot, and you give some speeches, right? I like to get out and give speeches, meet with groups, meet with anybody who's interested in what the newspaper does. I think it's an important part of being editor. I always learn something, and I enjoy interacting with the people out there who are reacting to what we do. 
Well, that's good because I want to talk about one of the speeches you gave. Kevin's father was a police officer in Cleveland for 30 years. So it meant something to Kevin when he addressed the graduating class at the Atlanta Police Academy earlier this year. He talks about getting ready for the move to Atlanta from Ohio six years ago and finding two cassette tapes in a drawer. About 20 years earlier, I'd recorded a long interview with my father. He had just retired after about 30 years as a Cleveland, Ohio police officer. The recording offers me a rich personal memory and connection with my father, who died about 14 years ago. I'm not sure my father ever got over having his son who ended up working in the media. The very media that will provide the forum for those who will criticize your performance and decisions that you make in life-threatening situations. And as you look about this room at your family and friends, I can tell you firsthand, they're part of this. No one will be more proud of the job you do than they. I will always be the son of a police officer. And my father's words, which I can listen to now over and over again, still guide me. Then Kevin switches to the visitation before his father's funeral. As each person met my mother to pay their respects, it was our job to introduce the one she didn't know. But eventually there was an old guy in the line that none of us knew. We nervously glanced around as he got closer to my mom, unsure of how to handle the awkwardness of the situation. He took her hand and he introduced himself. You don't know me, he said. He went on to tell my mother that her husband had arrested him many years earlier as a young man. He said my father helped him get on the right track in his life. He'd seen the obituary in the newspaper. I just wanted to thank him, he said. So yes, of course, you have to hear some of that recording of Kevin's dad. Here's Jim Riley talking about being called to the 1968 riots in Cleveland. It's also known as the Glenville shootout that left three police officers and four others dead. Well, they issued shotguns, but they didn't issue me when a captain took mine. And I told him, I said, you son of a bitch, you'll never be out in the street. You've never been in the street in your life. You give me a 38 and you got a shotgun. So here you are in the courtroom, you're juror 18. What's that like? Well, you know, after having written that column and endured your lecture, I actually felt a lot of pressure. I realized I had to identify myself as the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so everybody knew who I was, and I felt like I was representing the newspaper, and I couldn't be perceived in any way as trying to get off the jury because it was obvious to me that there were a lot of people who were trying to get off the jury. My favorite guy was a guy who was dressed in scrubs, and on the phone constantly. I mean, he looked like a character off one of those shows like Grey's Anatomy. So he really came to the courtroom wearing scrubs? Right, hospital scrubs, and on the phone, looking very busy and annoyed by the whole thing. So I just assumed he was a doctor or surgeon or some, something like that, and his whole play was to tell the judge, I'm just too important, lives are in my hands, I'm going to have to go. When they finally got to question him, it turned out he's a project manager for some medical device company or something. And he didn't end up on the jury, but it, w- it was just sort of humorous. Another funny thing that happened, I, I was juror 18. Juror 17 was seated next to me. And we had a break at one point where the judge sent us out of the courtroom. I came back, juror 17 was gone. They went and got another juror 17. I imagine there's a bench warrant out for juror 17. By now, I've got a lot invested in this. I've written about it. 
I've thought about it. I've sat here all day. Unlike the Scrubs guy, I want to get selected. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. It's amazing how much time and thought go into jury selection. It's kind of a dark art practiced by attorneys with secret knowledge. But Bill Rankin has been watching lawyers pick juries for decades. Some trial lawyers tell you that you've already won or lost the case by the time the jury is seated. Jury selection, in my opinion, is the most important part of every single trial. That's Kara Convery, the assistant district attorney who went to the scene of the murders. The DA who works the scene is rarely the DA who winds up prosecuting that case. But in this case, the rare thing happens. Convery is first chair, assigned to sending Nicholas Benton away for a long time. So the process of questioning the jurors is called voir dire, two French words that lawyers love to mispronounce. It often comes out voir dire. The phrase literally means to see, to say. Or as Judge McBurney explains it, see what they say. Here's Convery. I love voir dire personally because I like getting to know all these different personalities and I always think it's so interesting how everybody is so different and then seeing how you all um, start to really just interact with each other where are you sitting in the jury box um, who are you talking to when you're coming in and leaving the room you know as i sit there in court the voice of this prosecutor sounds strangely familiar i can't place her and i'm pretty sure we've never met but there's something it's not the last time i'll have that feeling the legendary atlanta human rights lawyer stephen bright who teaches law at yale georgetown and georgia state says jury selection is a misnomer. It's really jury exclusion. A number of people will be called to the courtroom and they'll first be questioned about whether they can be fair and impartial. Uh, Do they know anything about the case? Do they know any of the witnesses? Do they have any interest in the case whatsoever? If they do, they will be excused because they cannot be fair and impartial. And once all those people have been removed, then each party will have a certain number of discretionary strikes. In Georgia, for a felony case, it's nine uh, strikes uh, that that each side has, the prosecution and the defense. And they can pretty much exercise those strikes for any reason uh, whatsoever. So they will strike down until we've excluded so many people that there are only 12 people left to decide the case, and those will be the 12 jurors. As Steve Bright says, jury selection is really more about striking the people you don't want or you don't want your opponent to have. Lawyers have a lot of ways of going about that. And Kevin, you got to be on the receiving end of that process. What was it like? Well, I have to tell you that you're asked all these questions, and of course you're trying to be honest and straightforward, but you're really wondering why they're asking you. For example, the prosecutor in this case keeps asking this one question And I'm thinking, they keep asking people about whether you fired anyone. So maybe this is some kind of labor dispute or a workers' comp case or something. In the jury pool, I learn about a practice known as raising your card. Everyone's given a big card with his or her juror number on it. Some questions are put to the entire panel at once. To respond in the affirmative, you raised your card. The prosecutor's, have you fired anyone question comes up again. So I raise my card. For me, that question is, 
one of my favorites. It's the most important in my mind because you can tell so much about a person, not just by whether or not they raise their card, but how they sort of talk to me when I'm able to go back to them individually. So for example, if you raise your card and I, I follow up with you individually and I ask you, um, you had an opportunity to fire someone and someone tells me about someone they had to terminate for stealing from the company 25 years ago and they think about it every night and they're totally traumatized. I'm less interested in that juror um, than maybe someone who has to make those difficult decisions on a regular basis. Benton is represented by defense lawyer Gerald Griggs. We heard from him briefly in episode one. Here's what he's looking for in jury selection. Fairness, making sure that whoever the prospective juror is can be fair to my client. And so you ask, you ask certain questions to gauge their responses and whether or not they can essentially be fair. Because we all know people come in with preconceived notions and experiences, but can you you know, use those experiences to just simply be fair and weigh the evidence and make a decision based on evidence. Griggs thought I would be a good juror for the defense. Because I, I thought that being a journalist, you would definitely look at the facts. You would come from a non-biased perspective. You know, I've been reading AJC my entire life. So I knew what type of um, investigative journalism that they've done. And I figured you as the, the editor would be able to go through the state's case and see what the facts really were. Griggs told me later that if he'd had questions about me, he had much bigger questions about some of the other prospective jurors. This goes back to the idea of weeding out people you find most objectionable, ultimately leaving the people you find the least objectionable. But Kara Convery was far more enthusiastic about getting you on the jury. All right, he's a he's an editor, he's a supervisor. Um, he's someone who um, supervises or manages a large number of people on a regular basis. He works in a fast-paced environment where, again, you have to make decisions on a regular basis, sometimes with limited information. So I was already interested in you um, <laughs> as a juror. Of course, by now, you guessed it. Kevin is chosen for the jury. And I remember seeing that they didn't use a strike and being like, yes, look, this guy made it. Another person who made it was Elizabeth, who asked that we not use her last name. She wound up being captivated by voir dire. I just, I thought it was actually interesting. I really enjoyed hearing the people answering the questions and about their lives and things. You're kind of on the spot, too, you know, about very personal questions about your history or if you've ever been arrested, if you've ever, family members of yours, people's husbands who had been killed or murdered or one woman started talking about her her nephew getting charged for rape remember the lady on the left and like how she didn't believe he should have been charged so harshly or something and you just thought she's not getting on and you had no idea if you were saying the right thing if you were saying the wrong thing and I think most people were doing whatever they could not to get on and I was more I was answering honestly but I was hoping that I was going to get picked there was one guy whose story stunned the courtroom. You'll recall we don't have audio from the proceedings, and yeah, I'm still not happy about that. So I had to ask him later to recount the story he told. His name is Joe Ransom, and he's a diesel mechanic who lives in Fairburn. It was part of the questions that they ask. I don't understand why they ask them, but like well, the instance with my mother, that they needed to know. Of course, he was murdered. We 
had not heard from her all day. My wife had actually called her and called back and said, I'm mad at your mama. And I said, why? And she said, I haven't talked to her. She didn't call me back. So we started calling her, couldn't get her. So when we got to the house, my sister was already there. And when I opened the door, or well, the door was open, I walked in and mother was laying there on the floor. He had beat her and stabbed her 17 times. Along with Elizabeth and me, Joe also was selected for service. He turned out to be one of the nicest people on the jury. It's kind of a strange process. As the questioning wears on, the attorneys are passing pieces of paper back and forth, scribbling on them, and then handing them back again. You're really not even sure what they're doing. But it's an informal process, and when they're finished passing paper, the atmosphere changes instantly. At 3.50 that day, the bailiff announces to the court, we have a jury. They actually seated a jury of 13, which confused me at first. That's because the two sides select an alternate. In some trials, it might be several alternates. But it's kind of a nasty trick. No one on the jury knows who the alternate will be. That means you have to sit through the entire trial, listen as closely as possible, make all the notes. And then, just as the judge sends the jury to deliberate, the alternate finds out who the alternate is. And he's not going into the jury room with his friends. And he's either really relieved or really pissed. So the judge turns to our baker's dozen in the box and gives us an idea of the case we're about to confront. I realize now that this is not some arcane labor dispute. It's a double murder case. And the guy in the suit who's been sitting at the defense table, he's the defendant, not one of the lawyers. He must have made bail because we've seen him outside the courtroom. And it's not just a murder case. Nicholas Rashad Benton has been charged with 16 counts. I've covered a lot of murder trials and I have an inkling of what you're in for. This is gonna be a tough trial. You're gonna be looking at autopsy photos and crime scene photos. You're going to hear some really heart-wrenching testimony from people who have lost a son or a brother or a boyfriend. And then there are the legal aspects of the case. It's massive. And for the layperson, massively confusing. Benton is charged with two counts of malice murder in the deaths of Quincy Fatweish and Reggie Koiku. Malice murder. That means you deliberately killed someone. But he's also charged with six counts of felony murder. Wait, how many people died? Eight? No, just two. I know what the distinctions are, but most people have no clue. So this jury not only has to understand a complicated and horrible crime involving four people, it also has to sort through the complexities of the law. As we'll see, both of those challenges come into play. Hey, Kevin, one more thing. During jury selection, you were asked all those questions. Did you tell the lawyers your father was a police officer? The lawyers asked... Do you have any relatives who serve in law enforcement or the legal system or some question like that? So I told them, yes, I had a brother who's a defense attorney and a sister who's a prosecutor, both in Ohio. But I didn't say that my father had been a police officer because he's dead. He's been dead for 15 years. And by now, it did cross my mind, should I have said that, but I'm on the jury and there's really no opportunity to say that and it's too late. And now we go to trial. Next, 
on breakdown. There are always moments in a trial where something happens that you kind of look around like, did that really just happen? Um, and that was one of those moments. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Kevin Riley and Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound by Chris Basta at Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Chris Basta, Bo Emerson, and Billy Guin. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagore, Ryan Horn, and all the great people at the AJC, plus Chris Nicholson, Buddy Hall, and Judge Robert McBurney. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.